0: Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast, hosted by Johanna Ruddy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnosis. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology, who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversations about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively.
1: everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast. We're so happy to have you. Um, If you joined us earlier this month for our webinar, looking at IBSC and new and novel management options, you heard from some of my guests, including Dr. Phil Schoenfeld and Dr. Megan Reel, who both talked about the proper management of IBS with constipation and what that can look like from the um, pharmaceutical side, the medical management, as well as the behavioral side, um, using um, brain-gut behavioral therapies and some behavioral modifications. So they are here again with us today to talk a little bit more about those and answer some questions. And also joining us today is um, an IBSC patient advocate, Suzanne Suzanne um, is living with IVSC and has some great tips for us about how to self-advocate with our providers to find that appropriate care. So hello to all of you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks
2: for the invitation.
1: So um, Dr. Schoenfeld, I'd love to start with you and just have you remind us again about some of the um, medical management that are available in treating IBS with constipation, um, starting with maybe first line and then moving into the pharmaceutical um, available drugs?
2: Sure. So for patients who have not yet seen a primary care provider, um, it's common to use psyllium, which trade name for that is Metamucil, a fiber supplement, as well as to try to identify food triggers, possibly to use what we call an osmotic laxative, you know, trade name MiraLax, where you take a scoop of that crystal and mix it up with uh, eight ounces of water to help you pass stool. And then um, focusing still on things that are available without a prescription, even using peppermint oil capsules, because at a dose of around 150 milligrams, that can be very helpful to use right when you're having spasm. So those kind of over-the-counter treatments can be helpful as initial medical therapy. When you're actually going to see a physician, I emphasize physicians to make sure you ask your patient about how much they've tried those over-the-counter treatments because I emphasize to physicians and primary care providers that you need to be willing to step up therapy if a patient has already tried those things and failed. Don't say, okay, well, I'm going to re-prescribe it maybe at a higher dose. I mean, the patient has tried and failed. So moving on to prescription agents The things that are approved by the FDA for treatment of IBS with constipation are lenapatide, trade name Linzess, and placanatide, trade name Trulance, Uh, lubiprostone, trade name Ametiza, and then tenapinor, trade name Ibswella. We can talk in a few moments about all those different medications, but one thing I would like to emphasize up front, both for the healthcare providers as well as patients that might be listening, all of those agents are non-absorbed. They bind to a specific receptor in cells that line the intestine. And the advantage of that is they don't increase side effects that might occur when a drug gets absorbed into your body. You might see some change in your bowel habits with it, but they don't interact with other drugs. They don't significantly increase the risk of other types of severe side effects because they stay in the gut and don't get absorbed. So that's enough of me droning on, I'll stop there for a moment.
1: No, I think that's great. And, you know, one thing that you talked about, which I think is really important and was very much a factor for me, um, was ruling out or ruling in, um, pelvic floor dysfunction in patients with IBS, with constipation, because a lot of times that dysnergic defecation is happening and, and, and causing additional straining and problems passing stool. Can you talk a little bit about how to, um, how to screen for that and, and what possible treatments might look like for patients who do
2: have that? Sure. Um, pelvic floor dysfunction essentially means that the muscles in the pelvis aren't coordinating properly in terms of relaxation or squeezing in order to effectively pass stool. And actually, certainly a GI doctor. Should be able to uh, get an idea if pelvic floor dysfunction is present just by doing a rectal exam of the patient. But if they suspect that that's one of the things that's contributing to constipation, then they refer you for some more advanced testing, um, specifically what we call anorectal manometry which can include, I know this may sound a little bit uncomfortable, but literally putting a a little balloon filled up with some water into your rectum and then having the patient squeeze to pass it out, having a little probe, very, very tiny inside the rectum and having the patient squeeze and relax to really measure how those muscles work. And sometimes some different types of, uh, Radiologic or x ray studies where you put a little bit of dye in the rectum and then have an x ray going while the patient squeezes and passes that dye out of their rectum.
1: Okay. Um, You know, one question we didn't get to on the webinar because we had so many questions, we would have been there all night. Um, But one question was asking about the relevancy of rectocele um, and when that becomes clinically significant. Um, and, and and you know what that might look like in terms of treatment can you address that quickly for us
2: Sure a rectocele essentially means that a little pocket has developed in the lining of the rectum usually in response to the patient having squeezed so intensely but not effectively having been able to evacuate stool and the the majority of recto seals are not going to interfere with the effective passage of stool. They're merely a marker that somebody's been straining and hasn't been able to effectively evacuate stool. However, if they become very, very large, then yeah, stool can get stuck in there. And sometimes a surgical uh, resection of that little pocket is necessary.
1: Yeah. I can speak from experience. You want to try to avoid that surgical um, (laughs) procedure is a very painful and very difficult recovery. Um, So definitely working with a pelvic floor physical therapist and really trying to minimize um, making that that rectocele worse is a a good idea. Um, Okay. So we talked a little bit about the FDA approved medications for IBS with constipation, Um, Tell us a little bit more about tenapenor and what makes it different from some of the other drugs that are available to treat IBSC.
2: Sure. So tenapenor, trade name Ibsrella, is a medication that binds to a specific sodium hydrogen exchange pump in the lining of the intestine. Um, By doing that, it blocks the absorption of sodium, you know, essentially salt, into the lining of the intestine. And because salt's not getting absorbed, then water stays in the tube that is your intestine and colon. And that helps keep the stool soft and makes it easier for stool to pass. The other thing and, and these are the kind of things you can only show in animal studies. You can't do these in, in humans. Um, but the other thing that's been shown is that by binding to this pump, that it strengthens the integrity of the lining of the intestine, that it's, for lack of a better term, less leaky. And although we don't truly understand exactly how this all works, we can show that once you start using a medicine like Tanapanor, that you see fewer pain signals being sent from the intestine up to the brain. Hmm. For not entirely clear reasons, these those nerves that sense stretching and sense squeezing and then send pain signals to the brain from your gut are not as active, aren't Shooting those signals up as often. And that's why gradually we see people experience less frequent and less severe abdominal discomfort. Although the improvement in bowel habits usually happens in the first few days with a medicine like Tanapanor. The improvement in abdominal pain may occur in the first few days, but may take a few weeks before it's truly, you know, occurring.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um Dr. Schoenfeld, from your perspective as a gastroenterologist, what questions, (laughs) this is always tricky, right? Because a lot of patients feel embarrassed about revealing some of these, this information, which can make it challenging for a provider to really know the best. Route to take with management. So, what kind of questions do you ask your patients when they're coming to you with IBS, with constipation, to make the right decision? And how are you involving them in that?
2: Sure. One of the initial questions I frequently ask the patient is what are your goals?
3: Mm.
2: What's most important to you? What's bothering you the most? And I try to ask that in an open-ended way to give the patient a chance to express themselves because too often I find that my colleagues in gastroenterology ask very specific yes, no questions, ask a few questions and boom, they're out the door. So that's, I think for patients having an idea in their mind, what their goals are, what's most important to them, what symptoms are bothering them the most is important. The second thing is I try to be very proactive about asking patients, what have you already tried to do to minimize the symptoms? Because again, I don't wanna repeat things that the patient's already tried and failed, or if they've tried something and it's been very effective, then I may have other ideas about how to expand on that.
1: Yeah. I think that's great because, you know, we don't want to assume that we know what the patient's goals are. You know, every patient may have different goals and may be bothered by different aspects of, of this, the disorder. So I love that you're involving them in that process and, and setting up some of those expectations um, Dr. real, I, I'd like I think this is a nice transition to you um, in your work um, in GI psychology and and I'm curious, you know, is that kind of the same sort of evolutionary process that you're taking to when when a patient is coming to see you?
3: Absolutely. Um, you know, being a fully integrated GI psychologist where, you know, back in the olden days of of pre-pandemic, um, my colleague, Dr. Schoenfeld would be right across the hall and we would have the opportunity at times to be chatting about a patient or even with a patient about this is their medical plan. How are they feeling about that? Or, um, this is the way, uh, behavioral intervention is going to fit into your treatment plan and even going further to the nutritionist or the pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, so I have looked at my role at times as um, almost like the cruise director, you know, <laughs> talking about the different activities and, and kind of interventions that the patient is um, has recommended or has the option of trying. So, you know, Dr. Schoenfeld may recommend a medication and maybe because the patient has had negative experiences or other medications haven't worked yet, they're nervous to try something else. And so we might do some behavioral interventions or kind of look at their lifestyle and, and work on those approaches, but maybe as anxiety kind of regulates a little bit or they're making some progress or they have better insight or they've done more education around kind of the medication or recommendation, we can then go back to the gastroenterologist and say, I might be ready to try that. Or Hmm. I've decided I was actually nervous about this aspect. Can you tell me more? So um, I have the luxury of more time with patients because I usually get an hour every other week with wow. them for a series of time. Mm. And so sometimes I can kind of hear what the patient is saying and then talk a little bit more. Maybe it makes me have questions that I can go talk to my, you know, MD colleague about and, um, and then we can really deliver that well-rounded service to the patient.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's really great. I really like that a lot. Um, you know, in the webinar, you talked a lot about some practical um, behavioral interventions, if you will, but maybe just like lifestyle changes is a better way of saying it that we sometimes take for granted, but can be really impactful in our ability to have a bowel movement um, and to feel good, uh, to reduce our abdominal pain, et cetera. Um, Can you kind of highlight some of those key pieces that I think we sometimes don't think about? Mm -hmm. So
3: one of the things that we've already touched on a little bit is that idea of, you know, when we go into the bathroom to have a bowel movement, um, there are some things that we can do that are going to help with that. So number one is not letting the cue that your body is giving you. So if you get a signal to go, don't ignore it you know right. that's your body giving you information that it's ready to go and so if we miss those cues sometimes it it passes and that can be very frustrating then once you're in the bathroom um proper pooping position is is a real thing where um you want to think about your knees being slightly above your hips um using a squatty potty that uh you know we've all heard lots of things about it's it's recommended. I'm sure Dr. Schoenfeld would back me on that. That the um <laughs> the squatty potty is is certainly something we should all have in our bathrooms. There
1: you go. And
3: um even if you don't have a squatty potty, anything that's going to elevate your feet a little bit is fine. Um, yeah. And even if you're out and about in public, if you just you know go up on your tippy toes sitting on the, the toilet, that will help. So um, then a little bit of a, a 35 degree angle. So kind of leaning forward a little bit and diaphragmatic breathing can be helpful as well. So slowing your breathing down, activating the belly through your breathing. What does that is that you're filling your lungs more when you're doing diaphragmatic breathing. So I teach it as a four second inhale, feeling the belly rise and a six second exhale, feeling the belly fall. And that movement of the diaphragm actually helps to produce a massaging sensation in our um, digestive organs, which can help to move stool along. It's also going to prevent some of that straining that we talked about. So, you know, every tip that I just gave right now, even if you're not somebody that has IBS, is kind of proper pooping for anyone. And um, the more we can do that, the better, because... Um, we're all susceptible to pelvic floor dysfunction. And um, especially women that have had children, um, those kinds of issues can creep up. Um, and, and so thinking about every time you go in, making it as relaxing of a um, time as, as you can is, is going to help facilitate that. Um yeah. A couple of the other lifestyle tricks and tips that I have are just making sure that you're getting enough liquid intake. So um, a nice number to kind of think about is eight by eight. So eight glasses of water, ideally, but it can also include your coffee or um, juice, uh, you know, a supplement drink, Um all of those things within reason. So we don't want juice to be the only thing that you're consuming or um, sugary beverages by any means, but um, eight glasses of water eight times a day is the ideal to kind of hydrate. 20 minutes of movement a day is another thing that can be very helpful for just living a healthy lifestyle. Um, And that can take some time if that's not already a part of your routine. So you can work toward that and incrementally and and also finding what you like to do for your physical activity. So walking with a group of of colleagues at your lunchtime can be a nice way to get that activity, those steps in, Um, walking as a family after dinner. Um, But then as you kind of think about or build your routine, Hopefully you don't identify it as just something you're checking off the list. Um, It can start to transition into something that brings you joy, that makes you feel strong, that can actually help with your digestion. And um, it also then can spark joy. So that's my kind of last tip or trick is that, you know, we have to find the things that boost our endorphins. And that can be, again, very simple things like laughing with a good friend or engaging in an activity that you find um, exciting or uh, enjoyable. Um, reading a good book, taking a bath, you know, whatever those things that spark joy for you are, um, it's really important to build them in if they're not regularities already. And unfortunately, in a lot of times when I'm just starting with patients, and I'll ask that question, what sparks your joy? Too often, people are like, I don't know. I am just bothered by these symptoms all sure. the time. IBS consumes my life. I can't do the things that I want to do. Right. And, and so we have to kind of really dig deep to recognize that if you let most of your excitement and joy go, we're going to build that back in and, and we can help you live a healthy life with IBS by incorporating some of these
1: behavioral strategies. Yeah, that's that's such good um, information. And I think, you know, I always, when I talk with patients too, I say, take the small wins because Mm -hmm. that's going to, you know, build to bigger and bigger things that you're able to do. So you haven't been able to go to the gym in a year because of your symptoms, but you're able to take a 20 minute walk. That's a small win. And you build from there. Um, so I think that's really a good reminder, which is a beautiful transition. You're like, just batten it up for Suzanne here. Who's a, who is living with IBSC and, um, is going to share with us a little bit about her illness journey. Um, so Suzanne, tell us how long ago it was when you, when you received your diagnosis and, and a little bit about your symptoms and how they impacted your life at that time
4: it was late 2017 when I was diagnosed with IBSC and I had had a catastrophic health event in late 2016. And I, um, I have gastroparesis, my stomach's paralyzed, and I have some motility issues in my esophagus and a lot of other things happen because of that. But this IBSC was a result of that event. Mm. Uh, Initially, I think like most people, it wasn't something I was comfortable talking to my gastroenterologist about, although she asked questions of me all the time Um, and she cared for me prior to the diagnosis. She actually gave me the diagnosis. So I learned to advocate for myself. That is probably the most important thing a patient can do is open up and be willing to talk about it. People are not comfortable talking about their bowel patterns and when they poop and don't poop. um, I've learned very quickly that doesn't benefit me and it doesn't benefit my doctor. She can't help me if she doesn't know. And I can't explain to her what's going on if I'm not willing to really get down and talk about what's happening. So we initially started with over-the-counter medications. Um, I took Miralax for a long time had little to no success. I've had amitiza. I've had Linsness. Uh, Those medications also, although gave me some temporary relief, they um, were not long lasting for me for whatever reason. Thankfully, my um, doctor, Susan, is very, very open. And when Ibsbrella came out on the market last year, she's, we have to try this. We had tried so many things. And if you've not suffered from IBS constipation, the discomfort is beyond how you got, what you can even explain. The cramping and the constant belly ache and the gassy feeling and the bloating and you think you have to go to the bathroom and you can't go to the bathroom. And I can remember times that I didn't have a bowel movement for fourteen days. I was probably the most miserable, grouchiest human being of earth. But Um, And even trying different things, that wasn't always the case, but it certainly did happen at time periods during the process of finding the right medication. So when I started Ibsrella, I started last June, and probably within two weeks, I had as normal bowel patterns I had had in years, and minimal cramping, minimal gassy, minimal... um, Constipation, I was able to go to the bathroom and over the course of time. Now we're looking at going on a year in June. Um, I can do the things that I like to do. You know, I love to go out to dinner, but if you haven't gone to the bathroom and you get that signal that you gotta go, you have one of two options. If you're in a restaurant, you can go to the bathroom and hopefully nine people aren't gonna come in, or you miss that signal and then that compounds your discomfort. You right. can't eat, you can't drink. And I think what Ibsbrella has done is given me back some quality of life that I had lost. Um, My husband and I are new to camping. That's a different experience. Camp bathroom campers or camper bathrooms are really small. (laughs) Um, And it's not a problem for us. It's not a problem for me. And I'm just very grateful for that. I think something that I didn't realize probably until early last year, late the year before, is the psychological effect this had on me. How um, alone I felt. And even though I could talk to my doctor about it, I couldn't talk to other people about it. I couldn't talk to my own family about it. it. It just was, they didn't understand. And it was embarrassing for me. So I think you have to advocate yourself, especially with your physician. And my physician asks me tons of questions and she will probe until she gets the answer. So I just give her the answer because I'm going to have to in the end anyway. But you also have to talk to your family about it and help your family understand what it is you're actually going through. So they don't look at you like, oh, you never want to do this and you never want to do that. And you don't want to go to dinner and you don't want to come over. And that's not the case. It's that you're so psychologically consumed with the fact that you have constipation and don't know when you're going to have to go to the bathroom that you don't really want to participate in things. And mm-hmm. I think as Bre- Israel has just been, I'm just so thankful for that medication and for our delics because it has changed my life, truly changed my life and given me back the ability to find my joy, to understand the psychological part of it, to understand more about how my body functions and about the tools to use in the bathroom and the deep breathing and the little stool for your feet. I mean, all of those things I incorporate and I have for a while, but that medication truly changed my life.
1: That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you that you're, you're regaining that that quality of life back and you're, you're able to do the things that you want to do. And I think you make an important point and well, several of them, and one is to be your own advocate and to really, um, be upfront and honest with your provider about the impact of these symptoms on your life. Because, um, you know, a lot of times those aren't questions that providers will ask. They're asking more about the symptoms and the chronicity of them, the severity of them, but not so much about the impact of them on your life, on your ability to be with your family, your friends, your work, whatever the case may be. And so I think that's really important that we're sharing that information with our providers. Um, But I also think, you know, as you said, breaking that taboo around pooping, so to speak, you know, like at, at the Rome Foundation, we say break the poo taboo, we have to talk about it more in order to drop the stigma that's around it. And we all we all go to the bathroom, right? Like, you know, some of us have more difficulty with it than others, but it's a natural um bodily function. And so we need to kind of drop some of that embarrassment. In. And then the more we talk about it, the less stigma will be attached to it. Um, and so I appreciate that you you emphasizing that as well. So thank you very much. Um, Dr. Schoenfeld, one um final question for you. Any any tips? clinical pearls of wisdom for our audience, um, both the provider and the patient?
2: I would emphasize that our treatment options have expanded tremendously in the last 15 years. Yes. Between medications, between low FODMAP diet, between the behavioral techniques and interventions that Dr. Real mentioned as well as uh interventions with physical therapists who specialize in pelvic floor dysfunction and that as a patient you want to be an advocate and and keep pushing your provider as as Suzanne mentioned and you know, be willing to go to a place where they can do a multidisciplinary team approach. And as a provider, recognize that you've got all these different treatment options. And if necessary, be willing to refer that patient to a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. team at a major academic center um, because there's a lot more to do than just, say, take some MiraLax and take some Medimixol.
1: Yes. Totally agree. We have so many tools in the toolbox. We need to start using them. Dr. Real, final words of wisdom from your side? Yeah, it's a
3: marathon, not a sprint. And, And creating realistic expectations for what living with IBS is. So it may not be complete alleviation from ever having constipation or diarrhea again, but that if it does happen and when it happens, You have a toolbox that you can use to manage that flare and then get back to your life. And I think that once patients have identified that treatment plan that they're comfortable with, and like Suzanne said, her quality of life is improving. And that's how she knew that her treatment plan was starting to be effective. Mm -hmm. um, That's where, you know, you're spending most of your time living your life and then also doing the things that help you manage your overall health. Um, And so oftentimes there's this underlying anxiety of like when symptoms start, oh my gosh, here we go again. How is it like, I can't do this. It's going to be so bad that decreases as a team approach kind of comes to fruition um, because then it takes away this idea of like, if symptoms happen again, what am I going to do? if symptoms start to happen, you know, you start to catch those symptoms earlier and, and then you go into your, your plans. Um, So, so, you know, looking at realistic expectations and knowing that you are capable of managing your symptoms and that will build your confidence and, and that will help you kind of live life, feeling um, empowered
1: with your, your strategies that you
3: have. I totally agree.
1: I think many times patients feel very hopeless and helpless that they're trying it on their own. And they, and these symptoms are just dominating every aspect of their life. And then they just don't, they don't realize maybe, or recognize that there are tools available. There are people available to build around them and help support them and provide them with some good management options. So that, as you said, when these, symptom flares do occur, they know how to manage it better um, and not feel so out of control. Um, So that's a great point.
3: And I think one more thing that Suzanne said that's so important is that, you know, and and it ties into my idea of being prepared. It's going to take a little time Mm. that, you know, we get it. We, we understand you are suffering. So, you know, when I'm first meeting with a patient even though I may ask about their joy, I I understand why, you know, you're miserable and and you're in pain and you're scared that things aren't going to get better. But even from that first session when we can start to talk about, you know, the different interventions that we can use, a lot of times it sparks just an ounce of hope and I'll have patients say to me, "I feel like some of this is going to help me. And I haven't felt that in a long time. And so I know it doesn't just have to be medication. It's not just going to be diet. It's not just, it's going to be this collect, collaborative collection of things that we're going to find that work for the patient. And, um, and that hope goes so far as, as the treatment plan unfolds.
1: Absolutely agree with you. Thank you all so much for joining me today on this conversation. Um, Really appreciate the insight. And Suzanne, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's really important that we continue to amplify the patient's voice in all of our programming. So so much appreciate you joining us today. Until next time, everyone, take good care. We'll see you next month for another Tuesday night IBS podcast. Bye now.
0: Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS. And be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag TuesdayNightIBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with our monthly guest and I encourage you to join in on the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday night, IBS, and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.